and I uh, try to look on that a little more as we go on, but I want to greet you this evening in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our interceding Lord. And I was challenged as I pondered on the John chapter 17, it may be somewhat of a burden of the, of the message this evening, is that, you know, in John 17, verse 11, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And it says, Keep through thine own name those thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Jesus is praying for a special unity that goes beyond the human in the life of his disciples. He goes on in verse 16 and 17. He is praying to the Father. He says, they are not of, not of the world as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Again, we have the prayer that Jesus is acknowledging that his disciples are not going to be of this world. The things of this world are not going to be the motivating factors of life, but the things that are eternal. And our focus needs to be on those eternal things. And therefore he prays that God would sanctify us, that he would set us apart from the defilements of this world according to uh, to truth, and he says, thy word is truth. And again, we could, we could go off and we could look at the absoluteness of truth that we find in God's word. And then verse 20, he prays for future believers. He says in verse 21, uh, verse 20 and 21, he prays for the oneness of his disciples that the world may believe. As we look at that, we see a heart burden of Jesus. But I guess the question I have this evening is how does that heart burden of Jesus flesh out in 2022? Is that still the burden of God's people? How do we flesh that out? When we look at the church at large today, you know, we find that there's a lot of ecumenalism uh, uh, trying to bring people together in a fake type of unity that is really not cohesive. But God is wanting his disciples to be knit together, um, be a body of believers, being a body. And we'll look at that a little more as we go into tonight's message. Uh, as we look at, you know, the, the, the world around us and, and the fragmentation and the division and the, uh, all the infighting. And, and then we come into the church at large. We, we see what is happening there. You know, and that's somewhat disheartening. But the question comes down to what about right here? What about right here at Word of Hope Mennonite Church? As I... As I, look at, as I look at you as a congregation, you have established only a short period of time. And I believe, from what I see, there's a, there's a unity, there's a desiring to, to do what God wants us to do, uh, wants you to do. There's, there's, that, there's that oneness, there's, there's a sense of vision. 
But you know, Satan, uh, he, he goes all out in his attacks against the unity in the body of believers. His tactic, Satan's tactic tonight, is divide and destroy. Some years ago, I was amazed. I was in Virginia for a week of revival meetings, and the first evening we came home from church, the family I was staying with, they had uh, hundreds of sheep. I think they had a couple hundred ewes, and it was in lambing season, and they were they came back and they were having trouble with the coyotes it was either coyotes or wolves that were were killing sheep and so they said when they came home they they need to go out and they need to corral up the sheep for the night to keep them safe from the the predators i think it was wolves if i'm not mistaken but you know they they needed to pen them up and we come back and they very short time the 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 man of the house and several of the children they were on four wheelers and they were out into the pasture and uh it wasn't long they were back i said well how did you get this how did you corral up the sheep and they said well we we have little corrals out in the pasture that we just have different groups that we run into these different corrals well i said what kind of corral is it well, he said it's a piece of hog, it's four pieces of hog panel uh, tied together at the corners. And he said, we put our sheep in and, and he said that, that, you know, keeps them safe. I said, you're, you're telling me that 30 inch high uh, welded steel wire is going to keep wolves out of the sheep. And he said, yeah, he said it will. Because he said a wolf will only attack when he can divide and chase. I thought, how real. You know, he said as long as the sheep stay together in that group and don't run, he said the wolf is defenseless against them. I, you know, there is something about that 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 has a very deep spiritual application. You know, as God's people stay together as a flock under the direction of the shepherd of Jesus Christ, their safety. But when there's division and they're scattering, the devil has heyday. And so we look at that this evening. I've titled the message, Fit It Together in One Body. And I really appreciate the devotional as we, because the first two passages, first two scriptures I want to look at tonight are taken from Ephesians. Uh, the verses that were stirring in my mind over a couple day period were from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 through 22, where it likens the body as a building verse 21 it says in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord and then he goes on to say in whom ye are also built it together for a habitation of God through the Spirit and we'll come back and ponder on that a little more if we go to 
Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 3, it says there that we are to endeavor, he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As we look at that, that word uh, uh, endeavoring comes from the the Greek word spondazo, and it, it has the idea of making a diligent effort without delay. Now is the time. We guard it. We guard it with all diligence. He says here we're to keep the unity of the Spirit. We jump down to verse 4 in chapter 4. It says that there is one body and one Spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. You know, so we, we have that, that one Spirit, and that Spirit tonight is not divided. That spirit has one message for God's people. And we're called to put forth diligent effort to keep that unity. And then he goes on to show the diversity that is in the body, and yet working together as a, as a single unit. And, you know, I, I find it interesting, as, as Jay was sharing in devotions this evening, He was looking at the church of Ephesus, and I really wonder what Paul saw as he wrote this letter. Because it's only approximately 30 years from the time Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesian church, and it's only about 30 years until we have him, Jesus, addressing the Ephesian church in the book of Revelation. And it, he addresses them for the lack of love or the loss of love. Um, it, how does it say there? They left. They left their first love. They didn't lose it. They left that first love. And I'm here to say this evening, if we lose that first love for Jesus Christ, when we love Christ, we love our fellow believers. You know, the Bible, Jesus says, the first and greatest commandment is this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And he said, and the second and like unto it is thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. When you have that loss of that first love for God, you will have the loss of that love for our fellow men, and as a result, there's going to be a coldness and a drifting away. There's the opportunity, there is a stage set for Satan to come in and to destroy that unity. Now we come back into Ephesians 2 again, as we look at that idea of the building that is fitly framed together. And it says there that in whom ye are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Uh, You know, one of the things that that passage of Scripture shows, now we, we could go back a few verses there, and we find that he's talking about the diversity of the Ephesian church. There's the... There's the Jewish people, 
there is the Gentile people, and they're brought together in one body. Uh, if we go back to verse uh, 16, um, he says, well, maybe I'll just pick up reading at verse 13. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity even the law of commandments contained in ordinances to make in himself of twain one new man, and so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in the body, in one body, by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And he came and preached peace unto you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. I don't know, there's a lot in those verses. We look at those verses, it, it has the idea of the church of Jesus Christ being made up of individual members with diverse backgrounds and, and coming from diverse cultures. But he brings us together. Uh, it says that he, he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. You know, it's, it's as we come to the cross and we deny ourselves and we allow God the full control of our life, our will, you know, we can be fitted together into one body. Uh, each piece, it's using the analogy here of a building, each piece is fitly framed together. Um, I've I, I done a lot of construction work in my time, and right as we're speaking here this, this past couple weeks, I have some of my men working there in the house, uh, doing a little remodel project inside the house and it's it's interesting as you take apart to change and to repair how you take things apart and you see how every piece was framed together fit together each bearing its own responsibility of strength in that structure and not one piece of that structure is really attractive in itself. It's simply there to carry out the duty that it's put there for. But when you fit them together, piece by piece, you have a strength of a structure that is going to stand the storms of life. And you have a structure that is going to be 
I don't want to say her house is beautiful, but I think it is because when I go home and I'm tired, I have a place to prop up my feet and I'm glad for what's there. But, you know, we look at a structure and, you know, I, I, I'm one of them people that likes to see architectural design. I like to look at a, a building and say, wow, you know, that was put together with a lot of thought. And so what I'm driving at there is it's not the individual that takes the credit or the glory, but it's a whole. It's a whole. It's that which is complete. And, uh, you know, in order for that, that building in its completeness to carry any measure of glory, each piece must be hid in the structure. You know, it, each piece must be in its place, uh, carrying out the duty. And, and when you have that unity, uh, in chapter 4, he uses the example of the body. But here he uses the example of the structure. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a unified structure. And in Psalms 133, 1, uh, the psalmist there says, How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And that has that same idea of being fitted together as one. Uh, in the Old Testament, and I, I'm going to leave these thoughts in a little bit, and I'm going to go back to the Old Testament, but... You know, this whole idea of the importance of unity that we find today is so missing in the world that we live. It's missing in a lot of organization that is called church. What is the problem? Why is it that way? So thinking of the, uh, here in Ephesians 2, it talks about us being built together as a habitation of God through the Spirit. Now we recognize this evening that God indwells in each believer's life in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that empowers and makes us usable in the kingdom of God. But how much more where you have a body of Spirit-filled believers united together and knit together in one building is God pleased to dwell there. And it would, it would use the terminology here that, and it's, it's, a, it's a scriptural concept. Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. But you have spirit-filled believers making up the church. You know, God wants to dwell in the midst of that people, and bless them and make them a blessing. If we go back into the Old Testament in Exodus 25, verse 2, I'd just like to go back there, and if you uh, people that know me well, I'm not much a one that gets all hepped and psyched about prophecy. Uh, I don't know why. It's I guess I've been to too many prophecy conferences, and I heard people make proclamations of things that were supposedly figured out, and a few years later, I found out they weren't because what was said to come to pass didn't come to pass. 
And so I got a little, yes, I'm, I study prophecy, but I love the types of the Old Testament. I, as we go to the Old Testament, you know, we, holding on to that idea of being a habitation of God through the Spirit, we go back into Exodus, Exodus 25, uh, verse 2. This is God speaking to Moses while he's up in Mount Sinai, and he gives Moses the instructions and the design for the tabernacle. He says uh, in verse 2, he says, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart. Ye shall take the offering. So God is saying here, I, I want you to speak to the children of Israel, and I want you to tell them that they are to bring me an offering. Uh, he says, of every man that giveth it willingly. I'd like to just make a little note there that God is looking for a people who will give an offering willingly. God is not going to demand, God is not going to force and take. The blessing in the building of God's kingdom is that which people bring willingly. So he says here that they're to bring an offering willingly, and if they bring it of a willing heart, uh, he's to receive their offering. And then we go down to verse 8, and he says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Uh, here God is saying, out of this offering that people bring, I want to build a sanctuary where my people, or where I can dwell in the midst of my people. Some, uh, you know, very similar to the idea that we have in Ephesians chapter 2. A place where God will dwell among his people. He says, build me this sanctuary. And I find in verse 9 is, a, is, a, is something that repeats itself through the book of Exodus here. In the building of the tabernacle, he says, According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. God is very concerned that the tabernacle is built exactly according to the pattern that God showed Moses. And verse 40 again, he, in chapter 25, he says, And look that ye make them after their pattern which was shown thee in the mount. Very, very articulate. And I, I would like to now just take a look at the tabernacle a little bit and I want to come down to a few aspects that I believe uh, are going to help us to understand the unity that God wants to see in the church of Jesus Christ. Um, if we look at history of Israel, we look at the tabernacle. I already mentioned there, God wanted a free will offering to be taken. Now, as we look at the offerings of the Old Testament, there were two 
types of offerings. One was the blood offerings for the atonement of sin. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was imperative that the person that had sinned, he was burdened down with guilt, he could bring an offering to the door of the tabernacle, and there he could lay his hand on the head of that innocent animal, and he could confess his sin. As he confessed his sin, the priest would, or the Levite would come and slice the throat of that animal, and that blood was offered as a blood atonement. We can look at all the blood offerings of the New Testament. You have the great day of atonement. You have the Passover lamb. You have all the blood offerings. And we find that them blood offerings were fulfilled, or the shedding of blood, uh, Jesus fulfilled when he entered once into the holy place and offered himself for us. However, the other offering is the free will offering. That is the offering that an individual, it wasn't a matter of sin. It was a matter of love and respect and reverence and appreciation for the awe of who God was. He could bring an offering. Uh, it wasn't, didn't need to be specific. The free will of offering could be, it could be of grain, it could be of bread, it could be of an animal, it, it could be whatever he had. He could bring and offer it as an offering unto the Lord. And, uh, you know, while Christ has fulfilled the blood offering, God is still looking for the free will offerings of the lives of his children. And the ultimate offering, I might say, is, and, and we'll maybe get to this a little later, but in Romans 12, it says that uh, we are to... Um, now the, the, the verse slips me. Uh, yes, we present our bodies a living sacrifice unto the Lord. That's a free will offering. But anyway, uh, in verse 28, he says, Build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And I, I would just like to add there that God's desire is to dwell in the very heart of his people. But God refuses to dwell in the cesspools of sins of men. He wants a place that is set apart, a place that is holy. And so God is, is looking, uh, and then in verse 40 we have the, the, uh, the pattern of the tabernacle. God says, make sure that you show, uh, you make it according to the pattern. And the salvation, uh, the salvation, uh, God gives is, is you know, we, we, the threefold salvation. We have the redemption, we have the sanctification, and we have fellowship and relationship with God. Uh, the pattern of the tabernacle. If you study the tabernacle, uh, God's plan of a salvation that he was going to fulfill in Jesus Christ is painted in the picture of the tabernacle. Uh, you know, I don't know, as I think of the tabernacle and a foreshadowing, uh, some years ago, I was, we were, a group of us were together, I think, uh, I'm not sure it was a parents of youth night or something, and we had 
a lady that we know come in and she did the chalk drawings. She did chalk drawings and, and her husband was telling story. Now he was he was singing and she was she was painting a painting with chalk. And you could see that picture, you could faintly make out what she was drawing. And she finally was done and you saw the smudged chalk, you saw the the you, know, you saw the different details, but you couldn't fully make out what it was until they took a black light and shone it behind the picture. When that black light shone behind that picture, it, that picture came out in its full detail and beauty. That's a little how the Old Testament is in the types of the Old Testament. It's not until you shine the light of the New Testament on those foreshadowings that you see the articulate detail of God's plan. But you have the tabernacle uh, from the outer court to the holiest of holies depicting God's plan of salvation. The tabernacle has what they call one door in the back of the tabernacle. Jesus says, I am the door. If by me any man shall enter in, he shall go in and out and find green pasture. Inside the door of the tabernacle directly ahead was the altar of sacrifice. It's where the blood offerings were burnt. The blood, some of the blood was offered there and poured out beside the altar. Man cannot come into the presence of God without blood cleansing his sin. As you move from that altar of sacrifice toward the holy place, there's a water, the laver of washing. Every time the priest went into the holy place, he would come to that laver. And that laver was made out of fine polished glass. It says the women of Israel gave their looking glasses, which was actually what well, we would say a mirror today, but the mirror was not made with glass. It was made of brass that was polished so you could look in it and see every detail. It was there that priest, as he came to that, that laver, it was filled with water, and he could look at his reflection. He could see where there was stains where there was things that were needed to be cleansed. And there the priest washed himself before he went in to the holy place. But the holy place, there in the tabernacle, or there in the inside of that court, there was what we call the tabernacle. That was a building that God gave instruction to build that was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. Now, articulate detail that was given in the size of that tabernacle. And, uh, and that, that room was, that, that tabernacle was divided into two parts. You had the one part was 15 feet wide, 30 feet long, and the other cube at the front of that, the holiest of holies, was 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet high. And uh, God said, it's here 
and I'm going to meet with you. In the, and I, I can look at all the furnishings of it, and that's not really what I, uh, I'm not going to go into that. But when we look at the material for the sanctuary that God built, there was several things there. The first one that we read of is goat's hair. And goat's hair was simply the hair of the goats that was, was knit together, was, it was spun into thread and knitted together. Uh, it was, uh, later we read about the, the same material, it's a lot of times referred to as sackcloth in the uh, nothing attractive. And that's what the outer court was fenced off with and that's what was, uh, that was the top covering on the tabernacle. And you know, it's interesting the tabernacle and the worship of God, you know, the true, the true believer, the true follower of Jesus Christ, you know, as the world looks at his life, as, as he looks at that, that, that relationship, you know, they don't really think it's of much value. It has no appeal. But when you got under that, you have the fine twined linen, uh, the badger skins dyed red and the, the, the collars of scarlet woven together. And I'm not going to look much at that, but then you had the gold. In that tabernacle, there was lots of gold. Uh, gold, is a, gold is probably the most cherished, one of the most sought after, one of the most valuable, valuable of all precious metals. It's enduring, it will endure the tests of time. And gold in the, uh, as you're studying the types, gold represents the divinity of God. And so you had God's presence there. The other thing you have is lots of silver. I didn't take the time to, to, uh, to, figure out or calculate the ton but I if I recall correctly there was over a ton of silver yes you uh, do uh, yeah uh, brother Carl here yeah there was silver in the tabernacle so uh, and lots of it but you know that was the foundation of the tabernacle you know you had the sockets of silver 56 sockets of silver made up the foundation of that tabernacle and you say, well, what's significant about that? But silver is the metal of redemption. You know, you look at silver, Joseph was sold for 15 pieces of silver to go on and to prepare to sustain life for his brethren. After the children of Israel came out of Egypt, God slew the firstborn of Egypt, but then he told the children of Israel, he said, the firstborn of every family. He said, every male child that opens the matrix is going to need to be redeemed by the Lord, by silver. A person had a son, the firstborn son, they had to go and pay a quarter shekel of silver to redeem the son to keep it. Uh, we have Jesus sold for 30 pieces of silver. Silver represents redemption. But then 
the next material that we see there, it's mentioned at least 25 times uh, during the building or as a material of the tabernacle, and that is shittim wood. Um, everything in the tabernacle uh, was built, the boards that made up the tabernacle were built of shittim wood. The altar of incense, the table of showbread, the all the, the, the them things were made of shittim wood, but this this tabernacle was made up of 20 boards on each side of the tabernacle and eight boards on the front side of the tabernacle. Them boards were 15 feet high, 27 inches wide, and three and a half inches thick. I'm gonna ask you this evening, how big a trees did it take to build that tabernacle? And over many years, I read this passage of scripture and my mind went to the majestic chestnut trees of Pennsylvania in years gone by, or the virgin forests of eastern hemlock, huge trees. But I came to find out that that shittim wood is actually an acacia bush. It is acacia wood. Seldom does that wood get to larger than four inches in diameter. It's really a worthless shrub. Uh, shittim is, yeah, as I said, it's shittim wood is, according to my study, very hard and very difficult to work with. Shittim wood is also known for its nasty, piercing thorns. It's thought that Jesus' crown of thorns was thorns of the shittim wood. Uh, shittim wood stands in every way as a type of humanity. You know, these trees, worthless shrubs, God used to build the place of his dwelling. That tree needed to be cut down. It needed to be cut down and that tree needed to die. The second thing that tree needed to be, it needed to be stripped of its bark. It need to lose its personal identity and expression of who it was. That tree then needed to yield itself to the hand of the master to be cut and to be fitted and to be bonded in to the rest of the pieces of material for that board. As I look at that, you know, when that board was finished, you know, it was um, fit together, pieced together. And when that board was all finished, it was then 
wrapped in gold. That board was completely encased in gold. The identity of that wood was no longer seen. What was seen was divinity, a work of God. Peter tells us, we go back into 2 Peter, I like what it tells us there. 2 Peter says, according as his divine power hath given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Then these boards were taken after they were encased in that gold. They were set and they were placed on the sockets of silver. Now this whole work of God is based on redemption. And it's, re it's based on the idea that we die to self and we allow Christ to reign and rule in our life. He is the master. He is a potter. We are the clay. You know, that's, uh, you know, one of the things that as I, coming back to this idea of the size of trees, I don't know how many carpenters we have here, how many people that like to observe architect, but what happens to big boards that are cut out of one tree? They twist, they warp, they crack, they split. They're just not very useful. But what God is looking for is small worthless bushes that he can fit and make into something for his glory. As I look at this, you know, this tabernacle was built together. I'm going to move away from the tabernacle now. I could speak on the types there for, for a long time. This whole idea, God dwells in the heart of every born-again believer. But God intends that we as his children are knit together into one body. And as we go back to Ephesians uh, chapter 2, uh, you know, that one building, that one body becomes a habitation of God through the Spirit. We are... Today, as God's people, as a church, we are people that come from many differing backgrounds, but we're brought together in one body. I come back to this idea of endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace that is so essential to the life of the church today. You know, how do we accomplish how do we maintain that? How is that developed? And as I have observed some of the things, some of the uglies out of some church life, and like I said, where there's that kind of thing in church life, the devil has free run. There's going to be loss of spiritual life. And, you know, as I look at this, we... We need to come back to us being willing 
to take up the cross and follow Christ. We talk a lot about believing. Yes, I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe my sins are forgiven. And that's good and right. But we, have we totally surrendered our life to his lordship? It's only then that biblical unity and biblical love that was being lost in the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation is going to remain fervent in the heart of God's people. Jesus says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And taking up the cross is dying to self and allowing God to have preeminence in our life. And that preeminence when God has, you know, uh, when God has control of our life, and we have died, we have been crucified, we're taking up the cross and following, we're going to appreciate godly brotherhood. We're going to see a worth and a value there that's important. There's going to be a love for God. There's going to be a love for brotherhood. And we can come. Yes, we are differing people. We have different ideas. We come from different cultures, different backgrounds. But you know, when we together, with a heart of a love for God, come together to seek the face of God and his direction for us as his people, there's going to be a unity that is going to bind us together. You know, again, I come back. You know, are we endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? I believe you are. But I believe because of the world we live in, we're going to be tested. There's going to come times of testing. But there needs to be that purpose endeavor to keep that unity of the spirit in the bond of peace you know again I come back to this whole idea in Luke ch uh, chapter 17 it tells us there that whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple uh, again the world around us today the preaching of the cross to them that perish is foolishness but to us who are saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. You know, this evening, to the congregation here, I just encourage you to keep the unity of the Spirit, to surrender yourself as individuals, just as that little uh, shittim tree in the deserts of the wilderness um, was taken into the hand of the master craftsman to be shaped and to be fit. You know, even so, we need to yield our lives into the hands of the master. And I know one of the things I think about that's, that's often different there is, you know, when they built that tabernacle, they were working with uh, inanimate objects. There was objects there with no life, no will, no, uh, they simply had to surrender. But you know, we have a will, but we need to surrender that.
the Lordship of Jesus Christ and allow him to have control to shape and to fit according to his work, according to his choosing. You know, in that, God's blessing and presence will be in our midst. We will experience his blessing, and you will be a blessing to the many generations to come. You know, we're not here as a church just to serve my generation. We're here to enter into a, a, a church relationship, a church life that's going to be a blessing to our children and our grandchildren. If we have that vision, it's probably going to make a difference of how we flesh out things in trying times. This evening I'm not going to give an invitation necessarily, but I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to ask our chorister to sing a closing song, 517, and ponder what this song means and may we be committed to what the songwriter is, is, is writing and showing us there.